Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Victoria Topham with me and we're going to talk about ESG and sustainability. Victoria, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thanks very much for having me, Kevin. Looking forward to it. So, Victoria, a lot of sustainability ends up being talked about by marketing folk, but you're an accountant, you're a commercial accountant. Tell us a little bit about your background before we start talking about why you're doing sustainability things. <laughs> well, yes, you know, obviously everybody has their own career journey, but my actually started doing a geology degree that was my very first degree after that point I decided that perhaps getting professional qualification might be useful so went down the road that many of us accountants do and did my chartered accountants exams on an ICAS qualified accountant trained with well it was Coopers and Lybram became PwC while I was there in audit and then I've kind of did about 15, 20 years worth in kind of media finance within corporate finance, commercial finance roles in a European company. And also I spent about 10 years with Sky. So we had quite a lot of kind of corporate, kind of very, very typical finance type background. Took a bit of a career break after that, about 10 years ago, family, moving, various things. And over those last 10 years, I've done a combination of freelancing. I trained as an executive coach and I felt that I was really ready to get a bit more back to you know, the normal workplace and really decided where's my entry point, where would I like to go back. And media finance, I, it was great experience at the time, but it was, it was time for me to do something new and something different. So I took some training in sustainability and I'm really loving it, you know, really enjoying it and I see how beneficial it is having finance background within this area and, you know, really, really useful skills to bring to this whole, you know, growing rapidly area. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, why finance skills in this area? Well, you know, a lot of sustainability, I think, you know, in the past has been driven through environmental consultants. You know, there's the, people think sustainability, people think environment. And so that has been, I think, traditionally where a lot of sustainability folk come from. There's also the growing, you know, and it's been with us for quite a while, the kind of marketing side of sustainability companies kind of saying, great, you know, we, we want to do better for the environment. We want to do better for our people. And so I think there's a lot of marketing people. Traditionally in corporates, you know, you've seen it with CSR functions, you know, you've seen it sitting in different places. But the bit that's kind of missing, I think, in in it is finance because the ESG of sustainability, you know, one of the three pillars is governance, and that firmly sits with finance, you know, finance and COSEC kind of departments, that kind of area. And it just brings it together brilliantly. And it, you know, it's a real, real part for finance to be right bang in the middle of understanding how do you pull together the environmental, the social, and the governance cohesively. And I think that's where the role of finance sits within this new new world of sustainability that's not going away. So ESG reporting, it's suddenly become one of the major things on everybody's horizon. Why is ESG so important right now? 
Well, it's largely your audience will probably already tackling it. <laughs> I can imagine in their day to day jobs, but it's very, very investor driven, and it's it's a. I suppose the way I've looked at it, and sometimes I think it's the wrong entry point to sustainability, but it's about risk. It's about how our business is tackling risk, and it uses the same parameters around the way banks would do credit kind of ratings. It's almost like a risk rating, but looking at environmental, social and governance factors, some qualitative, some quantitative. There are many rating agencies out there, many of the traditional credit rating agencies have gone into ESG rating. There are also new ESG rating agencies out there as well. It's a ever-evolving uh, area and it's, it's you know, there's quite a lot of corporates, mergers and things in that space that continues to evolve, but it's all about ratings. I sometimes think it's sometimes said ESGs, companies that can demonstrate they're doing a little less harm than they were before, rather than companies who perhaps are doing good and I think there's a bit of a nuance, but it's a good thing generally that we've got it because now we've got a way of perhaps measuring it in some way. I don't think we're quite there on benchmarking yet, but, you know, we'll get there. And we'll, it's evolving. Certainly something that I've noticed is that funding is getting more scarce. No? Investors are, are being choosy. There's not the huge amount of capital out there now to pour into every and any startup. And I think as a result of that, the funding bodies are looking more carefully at the potential investments they make and say, has this got the right ESG stamp on it? Yeah, I think I would like to pick you up on the fact there's not funding out there. I think there's an awful lot of funding out there. <laughs> there's, there's a lot growing. But I think you're completely right that it is more targeted you know, there are many more targeted funds now. You know, most banks, including high street banks, are already doing sustainability linked loans. You know, Virgin Money do a sustainability linked loan for SMEs now, which they've they've got a kind of checklist which they've done in conjunction with Future Fit, which is a, a not-for-profit organization that look at look at benchmarking. You know, they're quite ahead of the trend, but you know, they are giving preferential rates to SMEs if they're able to demonstrate. ESG. Big companies are obviously doing it. You know, a lot of the listed companies are all being pushed by their pension funds, you know, by their big investors to be demonstrating sustainability in some way. So I think there's just more of a drive. I don't think the capital's not there. I think you just got to work a bit harder for it now. Yeah, quite, quite. And I don't know, is the pressure coming down the supply chain around this? No. If the company that's going for that capital or going to use sustainability in some way in its marketing, is that then being pushed back to its suppliers to demonstrate that they're complying with, with policy and so on? Yeah, I well, I think the supply chain, responsible supply chain route, there is probably some pressure, but I think the biggest pressure from supply chains is more coming from a government side where public procurement is now really pushing on supplier responsibility uh, about the social value of supply chains and the social value in supply chains is has several themes and it's not just about people and well-being it's about supporting larger companies supporting their communities and their suppliers and developing business opportunity diverse supply chains there's various things so they all sit within actual social value within procurement now 
I think government are doing the right thing, European, you know, UK, other governments around the world are doing the right thing by pushing that. And at the moment, if, if you do government procurement, they're asking for a minimum 10% social value. Like in Wales, I've heard of some contracts doing up to 30, 40% social value within public procurement. You know, Wales are particularly ahead of the trend with their Future Generations Act, which make them really think about this in a big way. Wow. Having been involved in a company that's, that purely worked for government for a while and leading the bid team, I can. there were enough hurdles then to jump through. I can't imagine what the hurdles must look like now that you've got to put into most bids. Well, I think a lot of companies are really trying to, with the work I do with Profit Impact, we're just a small boutique consultancy. We mainly work with SMEs, but we are working more now with larger companies. We're, we're seeing questions larger companies who've got big supply chains asking us how do we support our SME supply chain how do we do that you know because they've not really had to maybe deal with them in that way before. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about Profit Impact what exactly do you do? As I say it's a small at the moment growing boutique uh, consultancy now founded by a lovely lady called Sarah Whale. She is also an accountant so I joined her. She's been going for about two years. She initially set it up actually interestingly to serve the finance community. She felt that accountants needed a bit more support with sustainability and her idea was let's help accounting advisors who support SMEs you know teach them about sustainability, let them help them help their clients. She's struggled with getting that message across across the line yet because it was probably, she was a little bit ahead of her time. I think now we're starting to get more traction. But in the meantime, she's developed, joined her with a few of us in the team and we do B Corp certifications and we help SMEs with their net zero plans, um, carbon reduction plans and various things. So we're very much learning through doing with SMEs and actually seeing what the real barriers are for SMEs. You know, time and money, we all know it, but it's very difficult. It's hard for big companies to do sustainability and ESG. It's really difficult for SMEs to do it. It's a big learning curve. So we're continually attempting to develop tools that make it easier for them, you know, to enter this world. So what, what sort of tools would you be talking to an SME about? Well, we we use, we very much don't really like the typical consultancy, not for an SME, because they can't afford it. And for us, it's about embedding learning within an SME. You know, it has to be quite light touch. So it's a more coaching consultancy type approach. But we've developed one or two platforms, you know, learning platforms, but very, very self-service for the SME with light touch coaching and consulting. So, you know, it's probably not as an efficient in a process sometimes for some, but for us, it's about embedding learning, helping the SME come to it, think about their own business and their own problems and think about how they might reduce their carbon or increase their social value. The bit that I love as an accountant, though, is actually what you're really doing with many, many businesses is just you helping them with the strategy review of their business. You know, sustainability is a topic, but often it's such a holistic topic about the whole business, how you're operating, how your suppliers work, how you're treating your employees, how efficient you are with your resources, what your waste is. You get, you know, as an accountant, I, with commercial background and corporate finance background, I love rolling my sleeves up and getting to groups with, you know, helping companies 
just think about how they move forward. So it's partly sustainability, but you end up helping them quite a lot with just brushing up their governance, thinking about the processes and thinking about what's next for them. So that's really satisfying. So that must in turn mean measuring a whole load of stuff they probably never measured before. Well, yes. And bearing in mind, some SMEs don't even do forecasting. You've got a bit of a hurdle and you've got to cut your cloth fit. So obviously some businesses, yes, you're adding, you're just adding some extra measurement to what are already what they're already doing. For many businesses in the SME sector, it's uh, you're helping them think about how you actually measure. So I think it's a useful topic. I think SMEs will often not come to finance people and say, oh, I want a strategic financial review. They wouldn't think they can afford it. They wouldn't think it's what they need. They're thinking about time and money. But carbon reduction and sustainability is a topic that people are stepping forward to learn about. So it's a brilliant opportunity to actually, you know, have a little kind of shake around in there and see what it is and see if we can, you know, help businesses in a good way. You know, whatever, whether you're a you know, a more consultancy kind of accountant or whether you're just maybe an internal accountant, I think. So we're talking about a, an SME. I know typically a, a lot of growth CFO members are finance leaders in relatively small organisations. So they're possibly trying to get their head around this. Why should the the finance person be taking a lead here? I think because there's such a huge opportunity. I think the from an ESG point of view, you're trying to, you're looking at the risk side of sustainability and managing the risk. Actually, the most interesting part about sustainability is the opportunity involved. And I think that sits very firmly within uh, finance in terms of understanding you know, from a quantitative, but also qualitative point of view as to where is the strategy. I also think it's not going away and it's absolutely critical to the strategy of any business. So again, that's why it sits very much in the camp of a, of a finance director to get their hands around and, and really own the topic. So if I was the finance leader in a, a business at the moment, and I recognise that oh, we've got to do something about this, where would you start? Well, I think everybody obviously has their own personal style. It will very much depend on what their business is and how the interactions. But for me, it's about co-creating a solution. You know, it's not about one person having responsibility for this. I think if you're just starting and your business has not given sustainability a thought in any way, having a you know, organising a kind of facilitated kind of session or an offsite or something just to step back from your day to day and do it as a kind of strategy type day, but really, really think, because I think with sustainability, it's about being thinking about change in a big way, being quite ambitious and really thinking towards the future. So it, that takes a bit of behavioural change and things. So I, I would certainly advocate you know, that would be my absolute first step to really get people excited about it and thinking about it and imagining what sustainability could do for their organisation. And that shouldn't just be senior people, that should be right top to bottom in the business. I think sometimes you get really good ideas from all around your business. And I think rather than just one person leading and saying that this is what we're doing, you're not going to get buy-in. And sustainability often will mean quite a lot of business change ultimately. So I think it's important to get that buy-in from the very, very start. Is there a problem here that, that sustainability could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people? <laughs> yeah, you did bring up, 
yes, I think sustainability is an overused word. And I think some people are almost banning it and moving on to different words. Everybody uses it in a different way. So, yes, that's a really good starting point. You could have a whole day on talking about that in an organisation. Often it's somebody, another friend, colleague I've worked with in the past, he says it's similar to word ginger. You know, ginger means different things to different people. You know, there's always a word that will mean a different thing to different people. So, yes, that's a very good starting point <laughs> Thanks yeah. for, you know, highlighting that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could see the workshop that gets people thinking about that and send them off in breakout yeah. groups and say, what do you think sustainability means? So, indeed. And I, well, as an executive coach, I think those type of sessions are useful. And I think if they're if they're carefully thought about and carefully constructed, then everybody in the room can get a lot out of it. Now, clearly, after that type of thing, people do need to take responsibility. But I think there's many people within a business, you know, for your, you know, your environmental, often be your operational teams, your health and safety teams, those kind of people would be probably leading on some of the environmental side of it. On the social side, often it would maybe be your, your HR, your marketing, your comms, you know, those kind of departments if, if you don't have a, a corporate response, you know, social responsibility team. And then governance obviously sits with, you know, obviously finance and company sector. So it is, it's then deciding how do you blend that? How do you move that forward and not all just, you know, everything actually does interlink quite a bit and I think the most imaginative solutions are where they actually do interlink and you're not only just doing something that's good for the environment but it's good for the well-being of the community and your employees as well maybe not all the same thing but you know if you can think of a blended approach it's more powerful more impactful. Mm. Now a little while ago Victor you mentioned something called B Corp now we've talked ESG ESG certification but What's B Corp? How is it different to ASG? Well, it's a, so it's an organisation which you know, some of your listeners may be familiar with. Uh, there's about 6,000 B Corps worldwide at the moment. There was a big celebration at the Natural History Museum last year in London, about 1,000 now in the UK, just have got to. So we're, we're a large proportion of the B Corp. Profit impacts the B Corp itself, actually, but it's a US-based organisation and they come from an ethos of saying we they have parameters, pillars, and it's they're not exactly the same as ESG, but call them different things, but effectively it's those kind of pillars. You know, there's about six different pillars that you have to have marks on. Um, it's a, a certification you do, it's an application certification, and it is reviewed, maybe not quite to what we would consider audit level, but it's, you know, there is a third-party review of the policies you're putting in, the kind of different questionnaires that you have to do. And the idea is you do actually change your articles of association. That's a big critical thing. When you become a B Corp, you actually change your articles of association so that you are considering stakeholders, not just shareholders. Interesting. So there's there's another thing, uh, a campaign in the UK called the Better Business Act. And I would say B Corp aligns very much of the Better Business Act. They're very, they're different organisations, but it's interesting to see how they're all considering in different ways around the Better Business Act. You may or may not be familiar with it, but it's a campaign to change Section 172 of the Companies Act to make it, there is a requirement already for directors to consider stakeholders in their decision-making, but to make that more legally binding. Yeah. 
is the campaign. The, the problem as well with Section 172 is it doesn't really define who a stakeholder is. No, and I don't think that's going to go away. But I think if you know, the, the campaign is to make more articulate around that, to make it more, you know, point a little bit more detail around that, whether it may take them a while to do that. But I'd say that the ethos of B Corp is very similar to the Better Business Act, but they're actually doing it. They've now got 6,000 companies who are certified. We've obviously got the odd one. It's all generally good news in the B Corp world. Uh, Coots Bank are a B Corp and they've, they're going to be doing a brilliant campaign next month to celebrate all female founded B Corp. So we're you know hoping that profit impact features within that as a female founded one. I suppose that there's about 230 female founded B Corps out of a thousand in the UK. Now, that is really interesting. And another podcast guest that I've had on, David B. Horn. Mm. David, originally we were talking, talking to him about the book that he wrote that was all about uh, a career of acquiring and selling businesses. Okay. Um, David came up with a, an interesting observation about the, the lack of female founders mm. and indeed the number of pitch decks from female, all female founded teams that were rejected versus the number from male teams and often better pitch decks from the females being rejected, the ones who were being accepted on the male side. So I've got a podcast coming up with David next week about his new book. Well, I'm going to record it next week. It'll be out (laughs) for a few weeks yet. It's going to be called Funded Female Founders. So I'm looking forward to that because I'm I'm sure we're going to be talking about a whole load of things there. Yeah, certainly, you know, in that B Corp field, that the success of the female, all female team is possibly more successful than the overall landscape. Mm, Well, no, they certainly have been showing. Yeah, I was quite, that that stat is a lot higher stat than in any other business community. So B Corp are, are attracting female founders or whether it's the business model, the impact model that they portray, again, you've got to have a certain scoring. There's a maximum score of 120 when you do the all the assessment and you have to get a minimum of 80. They're changing it actually next year where you have to get a, a, a scoring across the board at a minimum level. So it's going to be harder to become a B Corp in the next year going forward, but um, it'll be interesting. But there's obviously... Most it's good news in the B Corp. I think other than the the one that we love to follow, Brewdog, who did get kicked out. But uh, it'll be interesting to see where they get to. I didn't realise Brewdog had been kicked out. <laughs> of, of B Corp, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, that was that. So, no, but I was glad because I think it actually lends a bit of weight behind, you know, it's not just a stamp. You do yeah. have to live up to your credentials. Yeah. Is that? A general fact that ESG is more of a box-ticking exercise than, than, say, something like B Corp? I would say they're all box-ticking exercises, but I think it's about what boxes you're ticking. You know, I would say a a lot of these things, yes, you know, you can, ESG, you don't fail as such. You just report and you are, you know, of a certain level. It's hard to benchmark across. There's some organisations doing some really good work around benchmarking, but it's still... I'd say generally quite early stage. The World Benchmarking Alliance do a great kind of top 2,000 companies. They pick 2,000 companies across the world in different, who they consider lead sectors, not always the 
really, really large company, often they are, but but sometimes it's more about sector leaders across the world. And they're, they've been benchmarking them for quite a few years. And they give a lot of good data about, you know, what does good look like? Mm. And that's, you know, where we're at with ESG. I think B Corp is more of an ethos. It does lend itself consumer brands. Um, they're quite, there's in some waitresses, they have a, a B Corp shelf of, of products. And so it certainly lends a bit of weight. I guess Brewdog's no longer on Waitrose and B Corp shelf. <laughs> Possibly not. You can probably still buy it, but it'd be in a different shelf around the corner. But yes. <laughs> that is a really interesting one that they're, they're separately promoting products with a certain sort of effectively a stamp of approval on them. Yes, and, and I think it's possibly a consumer-led thing. You know, I'm sure waitresses themselves have done analysis as to why they've made this decision, but for them, it probably helps them consider ethical supply chain issues. It's maybe what customers are wanting to see. People feel happier buying a brand that they think is good for the environment or socially responsible. Maybe waitress customers also have a little bit more money in, on average to your maybe your little or your Tesco person although they there's a good model called food ladders which I, I won't go into in this podcast but it's all around you know most people do shop around so I wouldn't always say but you know people maybe do their treats shopping and waitrose and they maybe do other more standard shopping somewhere else so whether B Corps actually goes within the luxury area is an interesting cost question. Could be, and that's certainly the way this particular family treat treat Waitrose. It's very rare the whole weekly shop would get done there. But, yeah, so it's, it's interesting how the idea of ESG and B Corp go into, into the branding area, the product placement area, the competitive advantage area. But, yes, and I, I think that consumer brands do seem to be leading the way a little bit more in sustainability. But I think sometimes... You look at some companies who are just getting on and doing stuff about sustainability and they're doing some really good stuff, but they're not consumer brands. Yeah. But, you know, they're, and it's the companies that are, I've been working with a company recently over in Wales and they are, they construct petrol forecourts. And a company like that is an it's a interesting one in sustainability because obviously petrol forecourt may not be around forevermore with the way we're going, but they're not going away anytime soon and they will evolve. What they're going to be used for will change. It might not be diesel. It'll end up being electric at some point, but we're still all going to need to stop and refuel our cars in whatever way that is. But constructing these things, it, you know, does take a bit of doing, you know, lots of concrete, lots of steel, lots of things that aren't recycled. So a business like theirs and many businesses in the UK, yeah, really, I've got a, a tough, tough few years ahead of them while they think about this. Absolutely. And I suppose an, another term that's banded around a lot is net zero. Mm. So where does net zero fit into everything that we've been talking about? Well, it's an overall pledge that governments have made um, off the back of all the, the COP uh, kind of 26, 27. It originally evolved back in COP 15 Paris Agreement, so quite a long time ago. So it's been there for quite a while. But people and countries, mainly governments, have now started to increase their pledge and say, yes, we are going to get to net zero 2050. The Welsh government have said, this, the UK government, many other governments around the world. So there's a lot more pressure from a government country point of view to get to net zero now. Mm, yeah. So 
government to get to net zero and government are not really a consumer of very much. They're certainly a commissioner of a lot of things. So how does government actually spread that out to, to all of the people and companies within the overall economy? Well, I think there's going to obviously be a lot more legislation that will increase you know, taxes, regulation, a lot of activities. I don't think, in my mind, there's an absolutely very, very clear plan yet of how we get there. But but there is a lot of work going on to, you know, bearing in mind about 99% of the companies in the UK are actually SMEs. There's no regulation or legislation around them doing it. And so I thinking about an SME organisation, is it reasonable to try and approach a net zero in an SME? Depends on the SME. If there's a professional services company, it should find it very easy to get there. If it's a construction company, it may be more tricky. But it's the same for the larger companies as well. You know, I think it's more about industry. So I think this is where the benefit of, say, some of the responsible supply chains will come in, where some of the big, bigger companies who have to do it and the investors push the activity, they'll have to get their heads around what to do, how to reduce energy usage, you know, how to reduce emissions, how to think about their scope three carbon reduction, you know, thinking about just the whole logistics kind of thing, uh, manufacturing. And then they will make their SMEs eventually, they'll have to be part of it because otherwise it's not going to all work. But it's we're, we're talking about you know, talking 2050, but we're going to have to be moving very quickly now to get there. Yeah. And I can see one big place of finance is going to play a role in everything we've talked about. And everything seems to be coming down to demonstrating in some way you're doing something, demonstrating that you've improved performance in something. So everything will have a number behind it of some sort. So is the, the need to have kind of consistency and discipline around reporting all of this going to be a major factor, do you think? Yes, unfortunately, you know, the reporting groups are quite ahead on this now. You know, the European, they've just had the CSRD come out, which stands for the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. That's kind of the first big one that's come out of uh, EFRAG, and they are that's really going to push all our, all listed and all large companies to do both environmental and social reporting. The US, there's quite there, all, there, there was lots of different bodies. It was very, very confusing for quite a while. There's still more to go, but there's been a lot of mergers between all the different ones. And I'm sure, again, all your listeners will probably have their sleeves rolled up and be doing quite a lot about this. But it, I think we're getting into a more helpful place in the next two years. ISSB will legislation or Reporting requirements will help us a lot because, yes, there'll be more consistency of reporting and that will be very, very helpful. But it doesn't get away from actually doing the sustainability stuff. I think there's one thing to report it, but you've got to understand why and how and the ambition of making change. And that the hearts and minds stuff is the hard bit. The reporting bit, I think, is the easiest. Yes. But I I think where where I was coming from on this, I I remember I, I spent some time that was back, gosh, 2008, construction phase for the London Olympics. And my particular remit was to put in a performance management system. And very much it was a group of finance people who understood numbers, understood how to 
process numbers to a certain standard at a certain time every month with a certain amount of rigor. And we were pulling together numbers around all of the promises that had been made to the International Olympic Committee and that the then Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, had made to the public in all of his pledges around the Games. And numbers out of my performance management system frequently ended up on the front page of the London Evening Standard. So the whole point of it was that, okay, if you've got a finance system, you've got a set of numbers of pound signs on, but there's one version of the truth. We need the same approach now to every number that we put out around the Olympic Games, whether it's to do with employment, because there were all sorts of pledges around employment, making sure there were jobs created in the three boroughs that the Games took place in. And those were the ones that mostly ended up on the front pages of the London Evening Standard. But then there were sustainability promises. There were legacy promises. There were environmental promises. And I think going back to 2008, a lot of the themes that we're now seeing coming through in ESG, coming through in B Corp, we had back then. And the absolute vital bit of it was database that was controlled that contained one version of the truth. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think you're right. It's We're not doing something that we've not done in the past. It's that we're pulling it all together in one place. You know, yes. all, all these things have been happening for a long time. Some companies have probably been doing many things in, in relation to you know, social value quite a long time ago. But we're we're almost seeking more transparency and more visibility. And I do, we all know that reporting regularly and transparency helps helps you really look in the mirror at things and it helps you drive change. So there are the two vital tools in change. The bit where many companies really need to understand and decide on is what is that vision? And I think sometimes some people jump into the whole reporting and all the ratings and things without knowing what the vision is. So you've got to have them both, but they're they're very vital. Absolutely. But I I think it's a big way into this for, for a lot of finance folk to come in and take over that whole reporting angle, Uh, because then if you're going to report numbers, you're going to say, well, what's the strategy? Yes. How do we measure whether we're achieving that strategic objective or not? And that's what your reporting is going to be set up around. Indeed. No, well, it's, you know, I think hopefully I've, you know, waved the flag that that finance people are extremely important in the world of sustainability. Their skills, you know, around consistency and accuracy, you know, and, you know, a neutral party often. You know, I think I think finance people are quite unique sometimes within an organisation where they are used to external scrutiny. They're used to audit, so they understand that you can't greenwashing doesn't pass muster in finance. And it's really important that finance people are behind any any sustainability reporting. Yes, there's this number, and here's all the documents that support this number. And please, Mr. Auditor, come and read them and tick them. Yes, yes. Although we're going to have to, as finance professionals, get a little bit more used to qualitative narrative, not just quantitative, because not everything in sustainability can be calculated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a difficult thing to get your head around, qualitative reporting. But as long as you, you apply consistent rules, and principles around something that's qualitative. So your 
you're evaluating it consistently. I think that's the thing, because does it matter if the absolute number is 100% accurate? No, but what it's what's interesting to know is if if it was 50% six months ago, you've seen the trend that's moved it to 70% now, providing 50 and 70 were measured in the same way. If, a, if an amount of it is qualitative rather than actual properly quantitative, it doesn't matter. No, indeed. And I think that that's going to be the, the next layer that people will get more used to. Yeah. Victoria, that has been an absolutely fascinating look at, we've covered a lot. We've covered ESG, sustainability, B Corp, net zero, responsible supply chains. Gosh, there's a huge amount there to get your head around. I think this is going to be a big, big area. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. And I think, you know, I hope that most finance professionals are able to, you know, are excited by the opportunity that it brings. And that's it. It's grab the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, Victoria, thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you very much, Kevin.